0: Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 17. Hear now God's Word. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and thus far the reading of God's Word, and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. We are approaching the end of our journey through this epistle to the Ephesians. And Paul has covered a wide range of subjects, both theological and practical. He has made application to individuals, to the church, to the family, and to society. He has pulled back the curtain of the spiritual uh, warfare that we are engaged in, the spiritual realm. And now he closes with a battle charge to the troops, to the Ephesians, to us. They must dress for battle and they must be equipped if they are to win. Some of us are defeated because we are vulnerable to attack. We're either unprotected or else we have no ability or no skill to advance an offensive. It's not enough to just be on the right side or to be pulling for the right team. We also have to be trained. We have to be ready. And remember, the battlefield is most likely not off out there somewhere. It's most likely at your house. It is in your marriage. It is with your children. It is at your school. It is with your job. It's the places wherever we go. That spiritual battle is going on. And so you're on the battlefield every day. And this text tells us that those days are evil. It's a strong word. It's a word the Bible is not afraid to use. It's not just, I had a rough day. But there's a spiritual warfare that's going on, and there's evil at work. And remember, evil disguises itself, so it's not always in that most obvious way, but in very subtle ways. And if you are to stand, that is, if you are to not fall... Then you will need to be drawn. You will need to don the full armor of God. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand. Therefore, we see that word "stand" repeated over and over and over. The fact that we need armor at all is an indication of what we're in for. If this were simply done for us, without uh, our participation, then there would be no need for us to put on armor. But every one of us is engaged in spiritual warfare every day, and, and it comes, again, in the form of outward challenges to your faith, as well as the temptations to sin. As I said, it comes in your marriage, or with your children, or parents, or siblings. It comes in your own mind. It comes in your own heart. And so there is both an external warfare as well as an internal warfare. Now it's true that God himself has given us strength particularly by way of the Holy Spirit, but he has also given us armor. To, and he's called us to wear it and to make use of it, both defensive armor and offensive now, I know some Christians who are fairly good at studying the doctrines of the faith. You know, going to school, and you know, imagine getting out the manuals to study war, to, to understand strategy, and to understand all the details. We can read the history of warfare, for example. All of that is well and good. In fact, I would argue that all of that is necessary, but then they are defeated because they have not taken seriously the need for the other parts. To put on the whole armor of God. This is not just an academic pursuit. It's not just about understanding something. It's then about putting it into practice in a very real way every day in our lives and our families. Studying war and fighting a war are very different skills. Some would say that all we need is to acknowledge and recognize that we are to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. But this is only half of the equation, because the Apostle goes on to say, and he says it twice to be sure that we don't miss it, that we are to put on the whole armor of God. We are to take up the whole armor of God, because without it we are vulnerable. Now there's another problem that sometimes some of us face, and that is that we are tempted to become overconfident in our own strength. I've got it all together, I, every, all my, my acts together. I have no problem. I am ready. I am prepared for the battle and the fight. And so we work very hard to make sure that's what everybody sees. And sometimes we even convince ourselves that that's our situation. We think that we are strong Christians. And again, others might look and think the same thing. But Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians, Let him who thinks he stands beware lest he fall. It's often after we have experienced some success that God shows us that we are not as strong as we thought we were. Samson's downfall came this way. Even Paul, after having been caught up to the third heaven, he says this. Right after he's told us that, he says, "...and lest I should be exalted above measure..." By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. So God has a way of sending things into our lives to warn us, to remind us that we are utterly dependent upon Him. that we cannot do this in our own strength. We cannot fight these battles on our own. We will lose every time. Satan and his minions never, ever admit defeat. Even with Jesus in the wilderness, the story ends with these words. Now when the devil, that's meant after the 40 days, after the temptation, the great temptation in the wilderness, Jesus successfully comes through that by citing the word of God. Now when the devil had ended every temptation... He departed from Jesus until an opportune time. The devil would be back. Your enemies are always waiting and watching for you to drop your guard and to expose yourself. You are weaker than you think you are. Our ancient enemy is stronger and smarter and faster than you are. And left to a standoff between you and him, you will always lose. Therefore, you need, I need the protection that God provides. You need the whole armor of God and it won't do to only have part of the armor of God. Now the armor in our text here is broken down into six parts. Gird your waist with truth. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. uh, Feet that are shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Uh, Take up the shield of faith. Take up the helmet of salvation. Take the sword of the Spirit. And so we're going to begin to look at these. We're going to try to look at the first three of these today. Gird your waist with truth. Underneath the soldier's garment was a girdle, thus the girding. What's being girded? What's being girded up? Um, For those of you old enough to remember girdles, you know what was being girded up. But that's not what's being girded up here. I remember, I have to take an aside, I remember almost every Sunday coming home from church and hearing my mother say, I can't wait to get this girdle off. Well, this is a different kind of girdle, which enabled the soldier in this case to gather up all of his clothing, loose fitting, flowing clothing, uh, and fix it into position to make him ready to be engaged and to be unencumbered in battle. Thus, to gird your loins or waist, meant to prepare for action. We read in 1 Kings 18:46, and the hand of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he girded up his loins and he ran ahead of Ahab to the entrance of Jezreel. And so you got that picture of I need to move from here to there, so everything gets girded up, cinched up with a, this girdle, this belt, if you will to hold everything in place, so now he's ready for action. So without this girdle, the soldier was not ready to fight at all. Notice that in our case, the girdle is the truth. This is one aspect of the Word of God. Now we're going to get later in this text to dealing with the sword, which is another aspect of the Word. But this first aspect is a more general aspect, the, the whole idea of truth. The girdle represents the whole truth of God's Word, the thing that undergirds everything else we do. Now, if you and I are to have any hope of prevailing in our battles, then this foundational part of the armor must be in place. It must be a settled fact that the truth of Scripture is what it will enable you to stand and to fight. If you haven't settled that issue in your mind and in your heart, that the Word of God is true, it is always true, it is inerrant. it is right when everybody else is wrong. Let God be found true, though every man a liar. No matter what, that is our foundation, and if that's not settled, you're in trouble. Do you remember what Jesus said to those Jews who believed in Him? If... You abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Jesus is speaking about truth as a whole, all of Christian doctrine. And again, when Jesus prays his high priestly prayer in John 17, he says, he prays for his disciples sanctify them, set them apart in the truth, thy word is truth. That's the foundation. And so I ask, are you girded by this truth? Is this the thing that's the foundation that pulls it all together and prepares you for action? This is way more than looking at the Bible intellectually. Rather, you must see the Bible as truth that gets a hold of you and governs you and governs your attitude and answers every question that comes up. And, and, and adjust your attitude toward the world, toward the flesh, and toward the devil. Peter says, for example, in 1 Peter 1.13, that we must gird up the loins of our mind. So truth is the first thing that you have to put on. It means that you have subtle convictions regarding where the truth is. And so there can be no uncertainty and no doubt. I am fearful that some have not even begun to do this, and that is why you are already defeated before you ever begin. There is no hope of victory. You don't know whom you have believed. This truth must undergird everything else. I was noticing that uh, Ben House, many of you know Ben, uh, he wrote a, a review A recent review of a new book on the Presbyterian philosopher and theologian, Dr. Gordon Clark. Some of you might remember a concert we had a few years ago by Nathan Clark George, who was Dr. Clark's grandson. Uh, Ben said this about him. Clark was heavily grounded in a truth that was not in vogue, not avant-garde, not popular, And not accepted in his time. Fundamentally, Clark believed that God has spoken. More completely, God has spoken in the Bible. And more precisely, what the Bible says, God has spoken. Our confessions are examples of how the church has recognized that the truth of Scripture is foundational to the battle. Each, you know, through different periods of time, the church has come together and say, we have to speak to our age. We have to take a stand. We have to define who we are and where we are. We have to have a strategy here. And thus we have things like the Westminster and Belgic Confessions and Catechisms and the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed. The point of our recitation each Lord's Day of the Nicene Creed Is to get, to get it around us, to gird our, gird up the loins of our mind and to provide a foundation of scripture truth for us to stand in. Christians, what do you believe? As Lloyd Jones observed, error in doctrine is always fatal in the life of the individual and in the life of the church. So, that's the first, the girdle, the foundation. Now, second, put on the breastplate of righteousness. This next piece of armor covers some vital territory. The breastplate covers the chest, the abdomen, the gut, the thorax, if you will. And in our case, the breastplate is not made of iron, but of righteousness. A soldier with his breastplate on can go boldly into battle full of confidence. Righteousness allows us to stand before God, before men, before demons. In the ancient world, the various organs were thought to be the centers of our affections. And so different things were associated with the liver and the kidneys, the spleen. We've heard of venting our spleen, for example, that could affect our feelings. Unless we shrug this off as uninformed, we still ourselves think the same way about the heart. The point is, the part of our body, this part of our body contains our vital organs. And if they're healthy and if they're strong, then we can function. And if one of them is injured, then we will be out of commission or we may die. Perhaps in our modern day we might think of the breastplate as a bulletproof vest. The breastplate was a prominent part of the Roman soldier's battle garb. Now this is important for us to remember, this is not our righteousness, this is not this is not what gives us confidence. For that would be insufficient. There are too many chinks in that armor. Paul writes in Philippians 3, 9, Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So the breastplate of righteousness is from God, and it's custom made for you. Very good men have had to discover that their righteousness is woefully insufficient. Paul had been a very proud Pharisee But he had come to see that all of that was worthless, rubbish, trash. The problem with our our bulletproof vest is that it turns out it couldn't stop a pellet gun. It's faulty. By faith in the truth, you have been given the righteousness of Christ, which you put on as your protection against the devil. And all that he can throw at you. Now, there's a famous book that was written on this section of scripture. In fact, it's not a book. It's three volumes by William Gurnall called The Christian in Complete Armor. Written in 1665. So, if you think my two sermons on this are long, I'll let you take a look at that. But I do want to read from that or quote from that. So just, just as an example of one of the areas we might not think about where we're having this spiritual battle. We, you know, if I bump into an atheist and we have some kind of interaction, a debate, a discussion, and, and, or something like that, everybody kind of thinks about that's the kind of confrontation and spiritual battle that we might be facing. That would be one thing. But actually it's far more direct and subtle and personal. So he's going to talk about depression. Depression, he says, is one of... I'm actually to to think that he wrote this in 1665. So, So the problem is common to man. Depression is one of Satan's most dynamic weapons to divert you from God's purpose in your life. If he can scatter a little dejection here and there in your thoughts and even in your prayers, he can convince you to remove your breastplate of righteousness because it is too cumbersome and will go against your material and temporal interest. Do not give in that easily. First, let me describe some of the devil's weapons for wearing down the saints. And then I want to lend you a little help in making him drop his weapons at your feet. God wants you to know that because of the breastplate of righteousness He has provided, no weapon that is formed against you shall prosper. Quoting from Isaiah 54, This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from Me, says the Lord.
1: Satan says
0: righteousness hinders pleasure. The devil works to picture a holy life with such a... An austere, sour face that a person could not possibly be in love with it. If you, he says, if you intend to be this righteous, then say goodbye to joy, the deceiver skillfully counsels. Quote People who do not have such straight laced consciences enjoy all kinds of good times, but you are missing them all. The truth is, Christian. If you want to see the countenance of holiness in its actual color and vitality, do not trust Satan's carnal talents to paint the portrait. Don't listen to him. He's not telling the truth. He's a liar. And one of the main ways he comes at us is by assaulting us and challenging our Self-righteousness and our goodness and pointing out that we're full of sin. And since our righteousness could never protect us, of course, then we need a righteousness that's bigger. A perfect righteousness, which is of Christ. His obedience to God was perfect. Moreover, his willing assumption he willingly assumed our sins, which he bore in his body on the cross. For God laid on him the iniquity of us all. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. As our sins were imputed to him, so too his righteousness was imputed to us. And so as we stand before God, he doesn't see us, he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. And he sees only the righteousness of his Son. There is now, therefore, No, zero condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The breastplate of righteousness gives us assurance of salvation. Think about how important that is, going into battle. That gives us confidence in the battle that we may be able to stand. Third, feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Of course, feet play a vital role for the soldier. Because of poorly protected feet, uh, I had an uncle who was in the Battle of Chosen in North Korea, Chosen Reservoir. And one of the big problems, the Americans went into that battle thinking they were going to go in very quickly and defeat the North Koreans, and they got stuck. Uh, they didn't count on 100,000 Chinese troops coming in from the north and pinning them down for months in sub-zero weather with boots that were not designed for anything close to that. And so soldiers suffered greatly with their feet, frostbite. In fact, my uncle was sent back home and told he would lose his feet because of severe frostbite. Uh, thankfully, he didn't, but uh, he did say that if he'd have known that would have worked, he would have taken his boots off the first day so he could go home, but uh, that's another story. Um, we need our feet to both stand and move. Our security and our safety depend upon our feet. No doubt Paul was again thinking of the Roman soldiers that he had spent so much time with, sometimes chained to them, or having them you know in a, in a prison, and that probably everybody else had seen very often. And they wore a special sandal which consisted of a sole with straps, but also in the sole of those sandals were something called hobnails. We, would, we might refer to them as cleats. They enabled them to not only endure and, and not wear out so fast, but also to get a grip on the ground so they didn't slide. It provided stability and durability. We are engaged, brothers and sisters, in mortal combat with a nimble adversary, and without the proper footing, we can easily slip and fall. It is the gospel that gives us a firmness and an ability to hold our position. And so if you, for example, if you or I, if we are uncertain about the gospel, then you are very vulnerable Paul writes elsewhere about standing firm in the faith. Throughout the ages and in our own day, many have compromised the gospel. They no longer stand resolute. They no longer know what they believe. They no longer know why they believe it. How can you be raised in a Christian family, be a member of a Christian church, go to a Christian school, and then flee the battlefield? They have become convinced that they need to just slip their shoes off, take off the gospel. Maybe it's not true. Maybe it's just good for some and not for others. And as a result, they're left exposed. And I ask you again, do you know what you believe? What are you willing to stand for? Are you ready to stand on the doctrine, for example, of the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, the miracles, the infallibility of Scripture, the atoning death of Christ, the resurrection? Are those literal facts for you? When the pressure is on, when the assault is powerful, we have to say, as Luther said, here I stand, I can do no other. I will never yield. My feet are planted firmly in the gospel of peace. The minute you start to compromise, you will start to slip and slide. And so as we all face this daily spiritual warfare, we must be aware of how our enemy works and why it is so essential that we have put on and taken up the whole armor of God And so I'll close with this picture that Dr. Lloyd-Jones gives. But the devil often changes his methods also. Sometimes he comes to you opposing you violently and condemning you. The next moment he will come flattering you. Sometimes he will inflame your passions to drive you into sin. The next time he comes in a most subtle and enticing manner, he will, he will achieve the same end before you know that anything has happened. Sometimes he will come and bludgeon you on the head, as it were, and club you in order to make you do what he wants you to do. And the next time he will employ a most sweet reasonableness. The devil contradicts himself and he doesn't mind doing so. His one object is to get us down. He will contradict himself utterly and shamelessly, and he does it and he does it, and it doesn't matter. As long as we believe him on both occasions, he is perfectly content. Sometimes he attacks the scriptures, the next moment he'll quote it, as he quoted it to our Lord. One moment he comes to us and tells us that we are not good enough to be Christians. And another time he tells us that we are so good that we do not need the death of Christ in order to save us. Our lives are so good that God will accept us on our own merits. One moment he comes to us and tells us that we have to justify ourselves by our good works. That nothing counts with God but good work. And that if we do not live this good life and do good works, we are not justified. The next moment he'll come and tell us that the works do not matter at all as long as we say that we believe in Christ and his blood, we can go where and do what we like. Antinomianism, one moment he comes to the Christian and says, do not overdo yourself, look after your health, look after your interest, read more, do nothing. The next moment he comes and fills us with carnal zeal and makes us so busy that we ruin our health, perhaps, perhaps or do not have time to read it all, and we lose our grip of the truth, and we do not know where we are. One moment the break is on, the next moment it is wild fanaticism. The same devil tempts us to both extremes. Now these are but a few of the reasons why we must all put on the whole armor of God. Let's pray. O Lord, help us to see that without your provision, we cannot stand in our own strength. Our daily battles too often end in defeat, as our armor sits unworn. Help us to see beyond the superficial and to see the reality of the spiritual warfare that is being waged against us. May those who feel the oppression of sorrow, depression, and defeat come to see the victory that is in Jesus Christ. May we all take up the whole armor that you have given to us, that we might resist the devil and have him flee from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Again, quoting from William Grinnell and uh, the Christian in complete armor. Consider God's special care to preserve His truth. Whatever is lost, God looks to His truth. In all the great revolutions, changes, and overturning of kingdoms and churches also, God has still preserved His truth. In a word, in that great and dismal conflagration of heaven and earth, when the elements shall melt with intense heat and the world comes to its fatal period, then truth shall not suffer the least loss, but the word of the Lord endures forever." The great care with which Christ took, the great care which Christ took for his disciples when he left the world was not to leave them a quiet world to live in, but to arm them against tr- a troublesome world. He bequeaths unto them his peace. Your embracing Christ preached to you in the gospel will be as welcome news to heaven. I can tell you as the tidings of Christ and salvation through him can be to you. There is joy in heaven at the conversion of a sinner. Those angels that sang Christ into the world will not lack a song when he is received into your heart, for he came into the world for this end. Rejoice in the news. Glad tidings and sad hearts do not go well together. This is where I really want to emphasize the point he's making here. Let me say that again. Good news or glad tidings and sad hearts don't go together. When we see one heavy and sorrowful, we ask him what ill news he has heard. What's wrong? What's the matter? Christian? what ill news has Christ brought from heaven with him that makes you walk with your folded arms and pensive countenance? Saints, Psalm 132:16, saints shall shout aloud for joy. Christians let the world see that you are not losers of your joy since you have been acquainted with the gospel. Give them no cause to think by your uncomfortable walking that when they become Christians they must bid all joy farewell and resolved to spend their days in a house of mourning. Well, we come to the table now to renew covenant with him, to remember what he's done, to remember the gospel. And to realize, yeah, this place that we live, this broken, fallen place, is ugly and mean and harsh. Well let's just take the gospel out of that equation altogether. Now what? It's just ugly, mean and harsh. And that's that. But with the gospel, there's hope, there's promise, there's expectation, there's joy. The power of God even overrides all of that ugliness and turns it to beauty. Now, there's still much to come, but right now, we've already been given that in Jesus Christ. And we come to this table to start this week remembering that, looking for that, expecting that. And so I invite you now to the Lord's table. Blessed are you, O Father, to you belongs all praise and glory, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. You have guided us all the years of our lives, supplied all our needs, quenched all our thirst, healed all our wounds, heard all our prayers. We are your people, and we desire to serve you forever. We are delighted to claim your name and to worship and adore you. We declare with the psalmist, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of all those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Bless this Lord's day, we pray. May we learn how to delight and rest in you. Bless our feast and our fellowship. Blessed are you, O Father, whom we serve in your Son, to whom with you and the Holy Spirit be glory forevermore. Amen. 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 You are of God, little children, and have overcome them because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Amen.